Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets, Meets World House. House. Take a listen. Are there any moments or spots on any of the sets we worked on over the seven years that you guys felt more at home that were like your little spots on the set you like to hang out? I'm afraid it was the sink. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. You had to act <laughs> by the sink a lot. a lot. Yeah. I was behind the counter. Yeah. Right. Doing business constantly. Uh-huh. Mom stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> Disciplining you Amazing. in some way. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. The NBA season is in full swing, and when I can't get enough of the action on the court, I spice things up by betting on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. Right now, new customers can bet 5 bucks and get 200 instantly in bonus bets. I was looking at the lines for making the playoffs today, and you can get the Lakers at plus 115 to make the playoffs, and the Warriors, check this out, at plus 205 to make the playoffs. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app with code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can bet 5 bucks on the NBA and get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778 877-8- Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467 369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888 789 7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gambling resources. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. I hope all of you guys are having a great weekend. Today we're doing our mailbag. I have something like 
24, 25 different mailbag questions that we're hitting in today's show. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to put those mailbag questions in. All of you guys have not just questions, but so much good analysis in the comments as well. It's been kind of fun to see the community of the show build towards just a group of a bunch of people who are diehard basketball fans who love their team, who love getting into the weeds. It was a lot of fun this morning kind of reading through all of those comments. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. It would mean a lot to me if you guys would take a second to scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops Tonight, follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements or any of the film threads that I do in the morning. And then last but not least, keep dropping mailbag questions in those YouTube comments so we can keep hitting them throughout the season. All right, first question. I have two questions, this person says. First, many people say that Jokic's best attributes are his tough shot making. I believe it's his strength, which I view as his base, from which he can use a lot of his other skills, such as his tough shot making and playmaking, because at the end of the day, at any time, he could back down anyone, even the biggest players, and pretty much just shoot right over them. All of this to say, do you think his strength is the most important part of his game, or is it the tough shot making ability? Then the second question, who do you think would be the best player from any time period to slow down Jokic one-on-one? As I said, I believe his strength is his best attribute, so I would go with the biggest player, Shaq, as Jokic tends to struggle with players like Embiid. I think Shaq could do something similar, if not more. However, I could see Shaq struggling in the Jamal Murray pick-and-rolls. Who do you pick? So, always I'm going to go with the strength and the base over the tough shot making. It's not to say that tough shot making doesn't matter. I just always view tough shot making as like a ceiling raiser. It's a thing you use in rescue possessions, late clock situations, maybe at the end of a game when a coverage takes away all of the easy shots that are available. But more often than not, what's going to carry you through the 48 or through the 82 or through the seven-game series is going to be your foundation, the thing that you use on more possessions than not. And to me, Jokic's strength and his ability to fight for position not just to catch the ball, but to get to spots closer to the rim so that he can make shots or to rise up through contact and still get good lift lift on those tough shots, it's all going to come down to the foundation. That over-the-top stuff is just what kind of pushes him over the top. I should say a ceiling raiser. It's a thing that allows him to you know, make something out of nothing every once in a while, which obviously like that was a huge role in that Lakers series last year, right? I don't want to pretend like that stuff doesn't matter, but it always matters more what happens over the course of the entire game, right? Rather than the small handful. It's why it gets really silly when we start talking about clutch shots as like only the final shot of the game. It's like, no, like in the fourth quarter, there's 12 minutes of basketball there. There might be 20, 30 possessions where you need somebody who can consistently generate good shots down the stretch of a game. And that's where your your actual bread and butter matters more than some of the more fancy stuff that kind of dresses it up, if that makes sense. As far as the best player to guard Jokic, 100% agree. I actually thought Shaq as soon as I was reading your question. It's just one of those things where he can kind of like fight Jokic off of those spots and keep him from bullying closer to the rim. But as you mentioned... It's not as simple. Yeah, it'd be great if the Sixers could just start a playoff series tomorrow to play against the Denver Nuggets and win the title, but that's not how it works. You have to be able to beat multiple different teams. Versatility is a very important part of the game of basketball. You have to be able to play and win different ways, and that doesn't just go for Shaq. That goes for Joel Embiid as well, and so again, when it comes to Nikola Jokic, just because a guy might be able to give him some more issues one-on-one doesn't necessarily mean he's a better player. Uh, obviously Shaq all time is a better player than Nikola Jokic and we'll see what ends up happening in the long run with Nikola Jokic. I don't mean to undercut him there. I'm just more talking about Embiid and the fact that he's able to guard Nikola Jokic. All right, next question. 
I've heard you say something before along the lines of Cleveland needing to make the tough decision of deciding between Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland and Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. The small guard pairing in the backcourt doesn't seem to be working at a championship level, and neither does the pairing of Mobley and Allen in the frontcourt. Does this recent surge with Garland and Mobley out confirm that theory? Should Cleveland be going all in on the Mitchell-Allen duo? Thanks. Love the show. Uh, first of all, thanks for the kind words. Uh, as it pertains to this lineup, there there is some reality to like it just kind of slotting more into my kind of overarching basketball belief system, right? Like that group, the Jared Allen, Dean Wade, Isaac Okoro, uh, Donovan Mitchell, Max Struess, they're plus 21.2 net in about 300 possessions this year, according to Cleaning the Glass. And it's like Jared Allen is a versatile defensive anchor, right, that can guard in different coverages. That's that important piece that I always talk about. Dean Wade is a big forward. He's not as strong as I typically like that position, but he's a big forward that can switch, that can help. He's a good rebounder, too. He gets about eight rebounds per 36 minutes. Isaac Okoro is your perimeter-oriented forward, obviously a little shorter than I'd prefer there, but he's a guy that can guard all the forwards in the league. And then Donovan Mitchell and Max Struess are a good combination of size, strength, athleticism, and skill for a backcourt. They kind of both are a little bit of both if that makes sense. They're both a little bit of a skill guard and they're both a little bit of an athlete guard, right? So it is a proper team construct. That said, I do think a big part of it is they're super fast, particularly Donovan Mitchell and Isaac Okoro. They're super fast and they play really hard all the time. And especially this time of year, that December, January phase before the deadline, that's where you're going to see the young, fast teams kind of take a leap forward. It's going to be a theme in today's show because it's going to be something we talk about when we get to the Utah Jazz. Really young, really fast teams when the older, slower teams are kind of struggling in the grind of the regular season, that's where they rise to the surface. So again, like I don't think that this group is better than what the Cavs are like when they're healthy. I just think that's an explanation for how they're winning games. And as far as like being weird, because two small guards and two bigs is a weird kind of construct. If you're going to be weird, you can be weird in the NBA. The Nuggets are weird. The Warriors are weird. There are weird te- the Kings are weird. But if you're going to be weird, you have to be awesome at specific spots, right? Like what makes the Nuggets being weird work is Nikola Jokic is the best player in the world. What made the Warriors being weird work was Steph Curry was a top 2 or 3 player in the world for the entirety of the dynasty, right? So like that's the difference is like you're weird and you're not good enough. As you mentioned, it doesn't work at a championship level. And so from that standpoint, I would invest in the big picture. And so that's why I keep talking about kind of trying to lean more into that construct until you get the right guys. Again, like I always talk about, you want to find a number one first. Everything you do at first should be geared towards finding that number one. And then from there, you kind of build out. And uh, at this point, it's about finding out whether or not Evan Mobley can be that number one. Next question. I don't have the for sure numbers, but when watching Pacers, it looks like Tyrese and a lot of his assists and offensive dominance come from transition or fast breaks. Do you think when the playoffs come, this will be an issue for them when the games get more physical and more possessions in the half-court situations, or will they still be able to consistently run on teams? By the way, Saguaro is better than Sabino. Shout out Chaz Mack, too. I went to Sabino High School, and Saguaro is their big rival, so clearly this listener is from Tucson. Chaz Mack uh, is on my men's league team on Sundays. Him and I have won many many championships together. We've won four of the last five in that league. Chaz is a hooper, one of my favorite players that I've ever played with because he's just super, super easy to play with. Like he's a a guy that can get 20 points a game, but with like very few dribbles, which makes him a super easy fit along other good basketball players. I'd go to war with that dude anyway, any day. Shout out to Chaz Mack. Now on that front, Tyrese Halliburton, 
The numbers will tell you that he's a great half-court player, too. He's an outsta- He's one of the best pick-and-roll ball handlers in the league, including passes. He's one of the best ISO players in the league, including passes. Well over a point per possession in both categories. He can beat switches of any kind. Like, he can toast bigs off the dribble. He can uh, uh, drive by guards that are too slow to stay in front of him. And then he can beat every coverage in pick-and-roll, right? Like, if guys duck under picks or die on picks. He can hit pull-up threes. He's got a deadly floater. He can make every single pass in the book, skip passes, lob passes to backside cutters, lob passes to the roll man. Like I just, I I understand that they do run a lot and that's certainly part of it and things will get harder. And also make no mistake that teams will wear Tyrese Halliburton down in a playoff series. I don't expect Tyrese Halliburton to go into the playoffs and just automatically be the best player in the world. This is a journey. He's on a journey that will take a half decade to get to that, like, you know, when he's in his late 20s where he could potentially be one of the very best players in the league. But I'm not worried about his ability to get there. It's just going to be about learning the lessons and making the adjustments along the way. But he is an excellent half-court player, and I'm not worried about that at all. Next question. You have said a couple of times since the Lakers versus Nuggets conference finals that what separated those two teams during that series was the Nuggets late game execution, which I agree with. You commented that the -the over-the-top shot-making ability of Jokic and Murray was far better than that of LeBron and AD, and that it's the primary factor as to why the Nuggets won and the Lakers lost. Based on that rationale, I do not think the Lakers need to make any roster changes prior to the deadline because LeBron and AD are shot-creating much better this year, which in theory should close the gap between the Nuggets and Lakers. I agree that the lack of of point-of-attack defense is an issue for the Lakers, but I also believe that if you swapped this version of LeBron and AD with last year's version in the playoffs, the series would have gone 6 or 7. Do you agree, or do you believe it is still not enough with their current roster construction? So first of all, I agree with the premise of what you're saying in the sense that like one of my big points of optimism this season is like Austin keeps getting better. His pick-and-roll numbers just keep ticking up. He's one of only 11 players in the league to run at least 500 at at least a point per possession. LeBron looks better than he did last year. Anthony Davis is playing the best basketball that he's played since 2020. So I want to be, and even though he's not making the shots, the cra- although he had a crazy shot-making game against the Mavs, but even though his shot-making isn't quite where it was in, in 2020, his playmaking is above that level. So you could argue AD's the best version that he's ever been. And all of that is encouraging, and I do agree that if you swap all those guys out, it's a longer series with Denver. But it wasn't just the over-the-top shot-making. One of the biggest issues was perimeter strength and athleticism and size, right? Like it was just Dennis Schroeder was their one guy fast enough to stick with people and he was too short to guard Jamal Murray, right? Like Bruce Brown literally took D'Angelo Russell out of the playoff series, right? So they'd go to Rui Hachimura, but he'd only be working in some matchups that played a certain style. Denver was one of the matchups where he was able to play. But to me, the problem is it's not just the -the over-the-top shot making, which is a positive trend for the Lakers. It's if you go into a playoff run with Austin, D'Lo, and Torian Prince, you are way too skinny and slow on the perimeter. Just end end of story. You're not going to be able to contend for four series with that lineup. So I have a lot of encouraging things that I've noticed from the Lakers this season, but they still absolutely need some kind of trade to bolster their perimeter speed and strength and athleticism as well. Moving on to the next question. Can a player that is a bad playmaker slash passer be the best player on a championship winning team? I feel like the scoring guard that can't pass is becoming less and less valuable archetype of a player, with most of them coming off the bench in the past few years. Also, is playmaking the second most important skill after scoring because of all the top players in the league are good to great passers? Embiid this season is a way better player than he was last season, and he seems to have only improved his vision, but it allows him to beat double teams and face more single coverage because they are reluctant to double him as much. I love the show and have watched for a while. Love your in-depth analysis. Keep it up. Thanks again 
for the kind words. So here's the thing. I, I'm not going to say it can't happen. I mean, we just saw Kawhi Leonard in 2019 win the title as a below, well below average playmaker at that point in his career, although he's gotten better since he got to the Clippers. But that was a freaking awesome team in like almost every phase. And he was a guy that like that team won 50 something games. It was like 59 games or 60 games a year before. And then Kawhi just kind of pushed him over the top. Right. So like it's a little it's a little different. But as we go back, it's like last year, Nikola Jokic, excellent playmaker. The year before that, Steph Curry, excellent playmaker. Giannis, the year before that. Huge playmaking leaps in that playoff run, right? The year before that, LeBron James, excellent playmaker. And then you go back and it's Stephen KD, Stephen KD, LeBron James, Stephen KD, right? So, yeah, I, I think it's pretty obvious that the best player on your team, if you want to win, it's, you certainly have a much better chance if he's a very, very good playmaker. The reason why is really simple. And this is why I've always gravitated towards the big matchup attacking playmaking forward in terms of my star archetypes that I prefer. It's because of the fact that in a playoff series, everything that the coaching staff is sitting down in their meetings and doing is geared towards trying to slow down your best player. Right? Like, I, I remember the chess match of the Lakers and Warriors last year. It's like the Lakers are just constantly trying things to try to slow down Steph, and the Warriors are constantly trying things to try to free up Steph. Right? Like, that, that, that's where the game plan of the series goes around. Right? And so, when you have to have a guy that can decipher everything that's happening in the five on five, that to me is, is a, a vital component of a championship leading superstar because that chess match is going to go a bunch of different directions in a playoff series, and that star has to be able to decipher and adjust to all of those things. Next question Why do you think LeBron has more success guarding someone like Kawhi Leonard than Kevin Durant? Really simple. He's 39 years old, but he's still strong as hell. And Kawhi's not as fast. He's more of a strength player. LeBron can match up with that. Kevin Durant is is more of a speed player at this uh, finesse and like kind of side to side finesse. Like he's he's trying to get around you, not go through you. And he's very shifty and very good at deceptively kind of hiding his uh, his angle of attack, and and that can cause some slower players' issues. Next question. Is a Lakers question. What is making the version of the old starting lineup work when it struggled before? Is it simply Austin Reeves playing better defense or is there something else going on? A couple of different things. At the beginning of the year, the Lakers in general came out kind of flat in terms of their effort. Remember, even their wins, they would like wildly come from behind at the end of the game. Also, they were running a new offense. Last year, they were a four-out, one-in, spread, pick-and-roll, spread, post-up type of team. Like cleared side post-ups, cleared side pick-and-rolls, that kind of stuff. Like They were very brute force. And this year, they're a little bit of both. Like, they ran a lot of five out to start the year. Then they went a lot towards four out. Now they're going back towards five out with their groups. Darvin's doing a good job, I think, of, like, running five out with his skill groups and then running four out with his with his more power groups, right? Um, as for why it's looking so good as of late, it's a combination of they just have a lot more repetition in the uh, in their back pocket from running five out this season, and they're desperate. Like, the Lakers... This is what happened with the Lakers. They came out this, the, the year kind of uh, a bad effort and focus team. And then they tried really hard and they won the in-season tournament. And then as soon as they won the in-season tournament, they completely relaxed and everyone just started kicking their ass for a few weeks, right? But it got so bad that they literally went two games below 500. And that was enough to kind of wake them back up to the point where they're desperate enough to kind of reapply themselves. Now, that does not make them good enough to win the championship right now, but that's why they're playing more like what I expected them to look like in this regular season. And honestly, that's the way to go. You lean that group, if they're going to play offense at that level, lean into that until the deadline, reconfigure the rotation and lineups from there. Next question. 
I recently watched an old video you did right after the Warriors' last championship about how strong their organizational structure is, from Joe Lacob to Bob Myers to Steve Kerr to the players. In your opinion, what has happened to this team since then? Why are they where where they are in seemingly such a bad spot now that we are witnessing the end of a dynasty? They love the show. Thanks for everything. Thank you for the kind words. Um, I really put it down to a couple of different things. Bob Myers just wanted to retire. I don't uh, think Mike Dunleavy is incapable or I mean it's too soon to tell obviously I don't think Steve Kerr is unmotivated or lost his touch I think it's just he's dealing with a lot of the personnel limitations of this roster everything to me comes down to just a couple of things I don't blame Clay he's getting old that was super predictable right it comes down to three things in my opinion Andrew Wiggins went from being the second best player on a championship team and one of the best three and D players in the league to a bad NBA player like that like overnight like it just to the point now where it's like you're you're hoping he gets it together, but it's like he probably should be coming off the bench. Like it's like, like he probably doesn't even belong. Like he probably doesn't belong in the starting lineup, right? So, and, and he has come off the bench at, uh, for stretches this season. So it's like, like that's just a huge decline. How do you account for that? How do you account from like like a, take a really good team, take the Denver Nuggets. What if Aaron Gordon went from being one of the most useful role players on a championship contender to a guy that wasn't good enough to start, and then suddenly they had to put Peyton Watson at the four, who's a very good player. But that'd be a, a downgrade, a significant downgrade, right? And so, like that, that's just difficult to account for. Secondly, Draymond Green removed himself from the team. Like, like J- Draymond Green took himself out of the lineup for more than half the season. That's a that's a a a a, a thing that's going to to hurt your basketball team when he's one of your most important players. And then, lastly, Steph Curry just hasn't been playing like Steph Curry for a few months. And what a lot of times, like people focus on lineups and coaches and role players and all these different things, but it's like, is your star playing like shit? Because if your star is playing like shit, it's going to be hard to win. And, and those three things kind of amount to why they look as limited as they have. I'm not worried about Steph. I think he's frustrated. I think he's annoyed. And I think he's not motivated by this group. I don't think he believes in this group enough to like really apply himself at this point in time. And I think he'll re-engage if they make a trade at the deadline. Draymond Green's back, so that'll be fine. You just have to find a way to replace Andrew Wiggins from a talent perspective. You have the means with which to do so with Jonathan Kaminga, although we'll talk about it in a little bit, but missing out on Siakam is definitely a blow there. Next question. First off, I really respect the way you conduct the show. This is by far my favorite basketball podcast because you actually give useful analysis that helps both fans and players. Secondly, what is a realistic trade the Suns can make using Grayson Allen and Nasir Little, who make a combined $15 million a year, Obviously, the Suns could use a 6-7 or above wing to play the 3 or the 4 who can defend and shoot the 3-point shot. The question is, first of all, thanks again for the kind words. That that stuff means a lot to me. Um, Obviously, as you guys know, I get a lot of crap (laughs) in the comments and on social media and stuff. And I always just say, like, the kindness from you guys outweighs that every single day. And that's why I never complain about it. Um, As for the Suns, here's the thing. Grayson Allen's a really good player. And he's having an outstanding shooting season. I agree. The Suns could use a forward. But you have to find a team that, one, has a lot of forwards, and two, that needs shooting, and three, that is close enough that they'd be willing to cash in a forward for a role player because they think that'll kind of push them over the top. And I literally can't think of a single one. I have three teams down here. I put Brooklyn because they have a lot of forwards and they they could use some shooting. They're not a good three-point shooting team. But if I'm Brooklyn... Why am I moving it forward for Grayson Allen instead of a draft pick, right? Uh, I, then I put down the Thunder. The Thunder have lots of forwards, but they don't really have any need for Grayson Allen. They, their guard core is awesome, right? And then lastly, I put down the Atlanta Hawks if they ended up being sellers because they've got some forwards on the bench that they could give up. But if I'm Atlanta, why am I not 
moving for a, a like to get assets to get a better play. Like if they move Dejounte Murray and Clint Capella and and DeAndre Hunter and Sadiq Bay or something like because Sadiq Bay would be a guy that I'd target for the Suns, right? Like he's in a contract year. Uh, you, you might be able to get him for a Grayson Allen and, and or something like that. Like maybe in terms of like value, they're kind of like similarly valued players. But why would Atlanta do that? Why wouldn't Atlanta move Sadiq Bay for a pick? Because with a pick, they can package that and and try to go get a a star right to put next to Trey Young. So like. It's one of those things where I don't really see uh, an obvious option out there. Maybe it'll materialize at some point, but it's a hard to find a combination of a team that would see value in Grayson Allen as a shooter and as, and as, a, as a veteran guy that could start for them or come off the bench and also has a plethora of forwards. Like it, it, it just is hard to kind of like find that kind of combination. And, it, and that's why I keep saying with the Suns, like, it, it, like it, they're almost better off just kind of leaning into being the best version of, of themselves that they can be. But maybe a buyout guy comes available. Maybe Gordon Hayward becomes available. But, it, like, is he fast enough as a, de- as a defensive player? It's hard to say, right? Next one. I think Kawhi is one of the most dependable jump shot makers in the league in the postseason. As we've seen every year uh, before he's gone down with injury, PG and Harden can, be, can both be streaky. But does having both on one team offset the risk of one of them going cold? With only one having a good night, I think they can overcome the other being off since Kawhi is so dependable, but maybe one being cold could throw off the other. So again, yeah, you're right. Like ever since the 2020 bubble, there's just been nothing but injuries kind of disrupting any ability to see that, right? And Kawhi shot the ball really well last year in the postseason before he got hurt. Shot the ball really well in 2021 before he got hurt. But in 2020, when things went off the rails, Kawhi was missing too. Like Kawhi went cold. So, like, it is possible that a team, like, from the top down, bad shooting is contagious and good shooting is contagious. If you've ever played in a basketball game, you know that kind of thing, right? And just, just in general, I think the best way to confront shooting is to play good basketball. You play good, good basketball, you get better shots, you get better shots, you, they eventually go in, right? But, like, at the end of the day, like, do I think Kawhi's going to shoot the ball well this year in the postseason? Yeah. Like, I think he does. I think he can. And if he goes out and he shoots insanely well, that buys you margin for error for Paul George and, and James Harden to be more inconsistent, right? 100% agree with that. The question marks that I have around that team center around just as a team, who's getting the easiest shots? And if Kawhi can kind of make up for that, great. But that's where health becomes an important uh, kind of factor in all of this. But I do believe in Kawhi and his ability to make shots, and that's why I have the Clippers up at four. Only the Bucks, Celtics, and Nuggets for me are like safer bets to win the title this season. So I do believe, it's just the reason why I have them behind is when you factor in the, re- the defensive rebounding issues, when you factor in the leaning on the pull-up jump shooting, they just have some more question marks on that front. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, 
Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Got to get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. With just a few taps on the app, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. It's your one-stop shop. Angie can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. They get the difficulties that can come with home projects. They get it. Why not make it as simple as possible? Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. Next question. I love the optimism, but do you but do you honestly believe the Warriors are one move away from turning their bottom 25 25th or worst defense into a top 10 required of a championship team? Impossible to make a run this season. Personally, I feel like this season is gone. Play it out with who you got, make decisions once Chris Paul, Clay and Kerr are gone or looking for extensions. So here's the thing. It can look really bleak right now, and I get that. Trust me, as a Laker fan last year, I I can familiarize with the feeling. But the dead giveaway to me is like Steph's not playing particularly well. And I can tell everyone's just kind of frustrated and annoyed at the situation. So January in the NBA motivation plays a huge role in the outcome of games. And you make the right trade. You get a re-engaged Steph. Everything kind of slots properly. Things can turn around like that. And then you start to look down the, the, the playoff field. And it's like, if I'm Golden State, am I scared of Oklahoma City in a playoff series? If I have Steph and a and two really good players that I got back in a trade, and and Steph's reengaged, like no, I'm picking the Warriors, right? Like you're gonna pick them over a lot of teams except for the really really big teams, right? Like it's Minnesota, it's Denver, it's the Lakers that would concern you, but like the Warriors still have a, a chance to beat just about everybody else in the field is currently constructed. And if they hit the, if they get it, if I have a home run Warriors trade that I've pitched before, and I'm gonna mention again later on in the show. But like, if they hit on that trade, everyone gets reengaged and they go. Like the Warriors are are dealing with personnel limitations, no doubt. But they're also dealing with January basketball with a bunch of frustrated veterans, and that's what this can look like from time to time. Next question. Hi, Jason. I love watching the NBA and fan reactions to their team winning and losing. My question is, why do we as fans, including me, overreact to regular season wins and losses at this part of the season? I understand overreacting to wins and losses close to the end, but to the middle and beginning reactions are crazy in my opinion. For example, a team like the Lakers who just won team two in a row. People are talking about them being amazing and saying maybe they don't need a trade. On the other hand, the Warriors who lost two in a row have fans begging for them to trade and saying they aren't contenders. Literally a week ago, the Lakers were the team that were seen who needs to make a trade and aren't contenders and the Warriors were seen as contenders and didn't need to make a trade. 
<laughs> Both fan bases want them to make trades, but they only seem to beg for them when they lose two games in a row or more. It's a long question and an interesting one, in my opinion. Uh, if you've listened to the show over the last couple of years, you guys know exactly where I stand on this. I, No matter how bad things have gotten for the Warriors this year, I never took them off my list of contenders. Not ever, right? No matter how bad things got for the Lakers this year, never took them off my list of contenders. Like Regular season basketball comes down to so many factors that go beyond just how good your basketball team is. And, and so it is, it is possible to kind of get misled by results, right? I think part of the issue is, is fans are emotional. What does fan mean? Fan means stands for fanatic. Like that's, that's, we're all emotional because we're fans, right? Like that's just how we react. And then I think the television product is part of it too. So, you know, the, a lot of, uh, national NBA shows, especially on cable, like on ESPN and stuff like they, they have legit pressure from production staffs and executives to be like, Hey, time to panic or not with team a or time to panic or team not or with team B or is, you know, a young team with a young player wins 10 games in a row and plays awesome. And it's like, is this player the best player in the league? Is this team going to win a championship? Right? Like that's kind of the, that's kind of like the pattern of that kind of stuff. And I think that noise kind of colors the way we all see things, but more often than not, it's like, like the Lakers play the nets tonight. If uh, there's a chance, I think the Lakers are going to win that game, but if they come out and they play uh, super lackadaisical and the Nets kick their butt, like it's just not going to change my opinion on that team because in the regular season, so much of this stuff is like that. Like the, the Sacramento Kings went out and got their ass kicked last night. Like uh, they've lost four games in a row. They blew a 20-point lead against the Suns the other day. Like you... It, they're just going through the, the 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 muck of January. They were one of the most impressive teams in the league over the first third of the season. They were going into opponents' arenas, like championship contenders' arenas, and kicking their ass. So, like this is this is just kind of part of that noise, and you kind of have to find a way to sort through it as best as you can. Next question: Now that Siakam got traded to the Pacers, what big trade do you see the Warriors make, and do you think it'll make any difference? Should they jeopardize their future to have a chance to win it once again now and in the coming seasons with Steph? Okay, I'll answer the second question first. Yes, you get, you can't win the title unless you have a top-tier superstar. You have a top-tier superstar. Unless you're under the impression that Jonathan Kaminga is going to be, which there's a chance, but it's a long shot at this point, then you, you, you this is your chance to win. So you got to go for it. You owe, you, you owe it to Steph. You owe it to the fans. Because, like... I promise you guys, if you trade Steph for a bunch of draft picks and you trade and and just build around Kaminga, we'll look up two years from now and they'll be 32 and 50. And you'll be like, but hey, Jonathan Kaminga's averaging 26. This is cool. Like, it, like <laughs> don't forget that every team out there that doesn't have one of those guys desperately wants one of those guys. You, you don't think Brooklyn would love to be like, hmm, what moves should we make at the deadline since we have Steph Curry on the roster, right? Now, as far as which trade I think that they should make, now that Siakam's gone, it's going to be really tough. But the one that I pitched on the show the other day that I really like is I would call the Nets. I'd offer him Jonathan Kaminga. I'd offer him Moses Moody. And I think it's Andrew Wiggins was the third guy, if I remember correctly. And I'd ask for Mikhail Bridges and Dorian Finney-Smith. And I'd run those two guys out between Draymond, Steph, and Clay. I've got two excellent perimeter defenders that can both shoot. Mikael Bridges is one of the best role players in the league. And then I'd make another run at it with Steph. I'm not even sure if that deal is possible. But if I'm Brooklyn and I'm like, I can get Jonathan Kaminga 
and we're going to talk about Brooklyn in a minute. As a matter of fact, I'm going to wait to kind of a lot. I'm just going to wait until, until I get to the Nets on that front because I did have a Nets question in there. Hi, Jason. With the D'Lo and Rui package as the base for the trade, if possible, would you rather get Mikael Bridges and Dorian Finney-Smith or DeJounte Murray and DeAndre Hunter? I lean a Brooklyn deal because I think Austin Reeves can be a much better pick-and-roll ball handler with enough reps. First of all, I agree about Austin. He's consistently getting better. And I think we're also seeing that he's really good in their flow offense when he's playing off the ball. I think he gets a bad rap for some of his on-ball reps this year. He's, like I've said before, one of only 11 players in the league this year to have over 500 pick-and-roll reps, including passes, and be over a point per possession. He also is like 1.08 points per ISO. So for all the complaining about Austin on the ball, like he's been one of the best in the league at it, you know, in terms of high-volume guys. It's just those lineups have so many other issues that it can look ugly sometimes. And offensive skill in a lot of those groups, it'd be Austin Reeves out there with a bunch of unskilled forwards, and he's just looking to hunt his own shot, right? So that's where it can get weird. As far as the Hawks package or the Nets package, the Hawks package is just more realistic. Atlanta's most likely going to make a significant trade at this deadline. Brooklyn, I'm not sure they even want to move Mikhail Bridges. They might, but they might not, right? And so that's where it gets a little bit more complicated with Brooklyn. That said, would I rather have Mikhail Bridges and Dorian Finney-Smith or DeJounte Murray and DeAndre Hunter? Of course I'd rather have Mikhail Bridges and Dorian Finney-Smith. I think Mikhail Bridges is one of the best role players in the league. And I think if you put him next to a LeBron James and Anthony Davis, I think that the Lakers would just be ridiculous. Uh, but it's just an unrealistic trade. And I think I think if I'm uh, the, between the two packages I just pitched, like if it was Rui, D'Lo, and a first-round pick, or it was Wiggins, Kaminga, and Moody, like I'm taking Kaminga. I want Kaminga more than a 2029 first from the Lakers, right? I mean, not, that's not to say that's not a good asset, but I, Jonathan Kaminga is a really, really interesting young player in this league. Next question. Whenever I question LeBron's defensive effort, I normally get told he has to conserve energy for the offensive end. This makes sense given his age and the offensive load he has uh, has always carried. But my question is always the same. Wouldn't LeBron be as productive, if not more so, if he turned the dials down on offense so that he can turn the dials up on defense? Or is his offensive value worth too much sacrifice? I think he's turning it down on both ends right now. Um offensively, LeBron has a physical exertion element that he can go to, a bully ball element that he can go to that he's just not really using right now. And in general, I think he's just kind of floating around. Uh, but he's got such a high basketball cue and is such a great passer that it can look like he's super engaged offensively even when he's not really engaging himself physically. Like he had 25-8-8 eight, and eight the other day against... Um, God, who do they just beat? Now I'm blanking all of a sudden. But he had uh, 25, uh, the Mavs. He had 25, 8, and 8 in that game and was like a nice connective piece in their offense just because he's so smart. But like it's when they get to the playoffs where I see that being a thing. If the offense continues to revolve around Anthony Davis the way that it has and they get a DeJounte Murray or if they run Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell, like the best version of the Lakers will be LeBron James as a connective piece offensively who engages himself defensively consistently and then for short stretches, like LeBron is still one of the best heliocentric guys in the league in short bursts when he's locked in, where it's like 10 possessions in a row where he spams a post up or 10 possessions in a row where he's like, I'm attacking Yusuf Nurkic and pick and roll or whatever it is. Like he's still one of the best at that in small doses. You just can't do it for a full game. And so again, like I, I do, I do see that as the goal when they get to the postseason, but I actually think he's conserving energy on both ends right now. Next question. Actually, I should fast forward to Utah before I go back to this one because I had two jazz questions. Can you talk a bit about the Jazz' incredible stretch lately and how they've been blowing out championship contender teams? Thanks. So it, it, it comes down to a couple of different things to me. First of all, my theory about young and fast teams. 
So like Colin Sexton and Chris Dunn are two of the fastest guards that we have, better athlete guards that we have in this league. And they both are outstanding defending at the point of attack. They, like Colin Sexton is like this has this power downhill game that's like kind of intense. And then John Collins can run up and down the floor like absolute crazy. And Laurie Markkinen is one of the best play finishers in the league. And then they do like a line shift approach where they'll like take all five guys out and then bring in all five guys on the bench. And then all of them are fast. And so it, it's just this like ridiculous like crazy just onslaught of speed. And I think that's actually a big reason why they've been so successful in December and January, right? Because like this is the stretch of the season where if you're young and you're fast and you play hard, you can cause teams a lot of problems. I thought last night was a good indicator, like bring in another young, fast team who's just better and they'll lose and they lose their first home game in 10 tries, right? So like it's fun, it's exciting. And honestly, the Jazz are going about the rebuild. And we're going to talk about this when we get to the Nets. The Jazz are, are going about their rebuild the way I think you should go about a rebuild. So compliment to the Utah Jazz, but... The, the reason why they're winning right now in large part comes down to that, like, it's there is skill. Guys are playing really well. Colin Sexton's hooping. Laurie Markkinen's hooping. A lot of guys are hooping. But they're also just young and fast as hell, and they're defending, and they're running, right? So, like, that's what kind of ties it all together. Now, let me go back to the other Jazz question. Do you think Utah will still trade Laurie Markkinen with the way they're playing right now? I believe they'll do the exact same thing they did last year, and they'll move some role players. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they moved to Colin Sexton, right? That said... I don't know that I haven't heard much buzz at all surrounding Lori Markinen. I think if someone threw a godfather offer at them, they'd move him, but I don't think it's something that they're actively trying to do right now. Next question. With the Kings playing terrible basketball recently, including the missed free throws and blowing a 22-point fourth-quarter lead, what would it look like for them to trade Barnes and some young guys to Atlanta for DeJounte Murray, along with throwing Herder and picks to Portland for Jeremy Grant? Murray could take more ball-handling responsibilities, and he's been shooting well, whereas De'Aaron has been playing much better off the ball than he has previously. Plus, I think a pairing of DeJounte with a more athletic guard would work better than him and Trey's fit. Grant is obvious and helps in so many ways, but would it make sense for Sack to just throw in DeJounte, uh, throw in for DeJounte with a low asking price and a solid contract to see if he could help them since they've been abysmal lately? They've been so bad, I think some trades would shore up the rotations a little better since Brown has been messing with them too much and ruining easily winnable games. I don't think this team can afford to miss the playoffs, so I think it makes sense to press the panic button ASAP and get what they can. Um, I'm a totally, I'm in a totally different spot with the Kings. I think they have a class. I'm thinking they're in a classic case of January basketball. Like last year, they kind of fought through all this stuff because it was new and exciting, but now they're a team that's looking forward to April as well. I do not think they're going to miss the playoffs. I do not think they have any issues in the regular season. I think they're just struggling right now. A move for DeJounte Murray and Jeremy Grant would be a half measure, in my opinion. First of all, I'm not sure Jeremy Grant even wants to go anywhere else. It's not to say they can't make that type of move. But for me, you need a four. You need an Aaron Gordon-esque type of four. And unless you find that guy, there's no reason to make a half measure. And like pitching to Jeremy Grant that you want him to be the dirty work guy that he was in Denver that he clearly has told everybody that he doesn't want to be anymore, then I think I, I'm not necessarily sure that he's the guy. Now, if Laurie Markkinen was available, yeah, you throw, you throw the kitchen sink at it, you get a deal done. But like right now, you're better off just kind of like hanging tight until the right move comes along. DeJounte Murray to me, like can you play DeJounte and Malik Monk and uh, De'Aaron Fox at the same time? No. Uh, if you give up Malik Monk in the deal, is DeJounte Murray that much better than Malik Monk? No. So like, it's a half measure. And so from there, you're better off just like waiting and seeing if Kevin Herter and Keegan Murray become better players until you end up making some sort of all-in move uh, for that forward spot. 
Next question. Hey, Jason. Love your knowledge on the game. Been my go-to NBA show slash podcast since I discovered you in early 2023. Thank you for the kind words. Since there isn't a big market for Levine, and if and if Lakers could get uh, get him without giving up Austin Reeves, wouldn't he be a perfect fit as an off-ball scorer, ability to beat guys off the dribble, and excellent three-point shooter? Sure, his defense isn't great, but with the athleticism uh, he is, couldn't he be better if bought in? And he already and be hidden as they already have a bunch of defensive guys. They can call it the three-star route, but as great as LeBron is, he's too old to do it for 82 games, and he needs a perimeter guy who can carry help carry the load in the regular season. Plus, Levine and AD with Austin Reeves is pretty good core going forward for the Lakers once LeBron retires or goes to play with Bronny. So, first of all, I agree that the Lakers need offense. This is something I've been on for a little while. Uh, it's working right now because D'Lo's playing well, but it's just typically not like this, right? Like, D'Lo do this for stretches or for games, but it usually depends on the matchup, too. Like, other finesse scoring teams he can kind of hang and then when they go against brute force physical teams that's where D'Lo really starts to struggle right um but Zach Levine's not the guy I'd go after he of all the names I've seen mentioned I'd prefer DeRozan even over him uh, I'd prefer DeJounte Murray over him I'd probably even prefer a Colin Sexton over him because he's a really good athlete at the guard position on the defensive end as well um that's not to, and then also Zach Levine's hurt again he t- twisted his ankle last night so like I just, and then we even heard from Brian Windhorst that there's a zero point zero percent chance that the Lakers make any sort of move for Zach Levine. So I agree with you in the principle of like where they need to go. I just don't see think Levine is the guy. Next question: Do you think the NBA has a problem with the lack of carrying or travel calls, or do you think the game is in a good place for the entertainment product? I don't think care. Like there's the occasional missed bad carry or missed bad traveling call. And I get that they look ugly on TV, but they only happen every once in a while. And I don't think that they're any sort of significant impact on the game. To me, it all comes down to officiating. And there's another question about officiating later. And I'll give the second half of my answer when we get there. What would you do if I convinced Joe Sy to fire Sean Marks and make you the next financially secure GM of my Brooklyn Nets? Okay, so fake GM Jason of the Brooklyn Nets. What would I do? So here's the thing. Four of their five core starter players are all 27 or older, right? Like Spencer Dinwiddie's older, Mikael Bridges is older, um, uh, Cam Johnson is older. They're they're like they're not young. They're not they're not a team where like like they're not the Jazz. Like they're not young and fun and fast and like oh we'll see what this guy can be and we'll see what that guy can be like. All of these guys are really good NBA role players. They're a team full of really good NBA role players. Mikael Bridges, for instance, is the best player on that team, right? If you ask uh, any you know random assortment of people, you'd probably vote Mikael Bridges. Really like Mikael Bridges. The Mikael Bridges best player on a team or second best player on a team thing, it's, it's just not gonna it's just not gonna work, right? He's 27 years old. He is what he is at this point. He's a good scorer that can go for 20, 25 in a night, occasionally go for 30. That's an excellent spot up shooter, excellent closeout attacker, but he's not a guy that you want to have as an offensive fulcrum. So then from there. How do you remember? I mentioned earlier, I want to be more like the Jazz. So, what I want to do is if I, I, my number one goal is to get the guy, right? And the only way I'm going to get the guy is by taking in young lottery talents that teams bailed on. So, guys in that like 22, 20, like, like, like the Lakers with Rui Hachimura, for instance, right? Or, and then two, they're draft picks. And the only way I'm getting those two types of guys is by taking my value and turning it into that type of resource. I have all these role players that all of these other teams would love to have. Dorian Finney-Smith, Royce O'Neal, Mikhail Bridges. like All these teams would love to have these guys. Flip them 
for draft compensation and other really young players with some upside and get a coach in there that uh, uh, that will attack the regular season and build a play style that's fun and fast and, and, and be fun and fast and young while you're waiting to see what develops from your young players and your picks. They're in the worst possible place to be. Because they're a, they're a below average team that has a bunch of guys in their mid to late 20s that everybody else wants, and they don't have a single piece that's like, a, oh, this is interesting. Like, I like Cam Thomas. He's a sixth man. I like Cam Thomas, but it, it, his, the, the best version of him as an NBA player is sixth man on a good team, right? So, like, like at a certain point, this, is the, the, this deadline's the time to do it because there's all these teams out there that want these kinds of guys. Uh, how, like, how many teams are there out there like, the Suns would love uh, a 6'8 guy who could shoot and defend. The Lakers would love a 6'8 guy that could shoot and defend. The Warriors would love a 6'8 guy that could shoot and defend. Like even a guy like Royce O'Neal might be able to pull some stuff back. So like they're, they they've got a they to me the worst thing you can be is have a group of these guys where we already know what they are. Go get guys who, like you know like I love the Jazz getting John Collins. It's like like yeah, he was a bust in in Atlanta. But like why don't we bring him in here and let's be young, fun, and fast and see what John Collins can do? And you know, uh, and let, let, let's and then basically flip those guys at the deadline. Like they, that's what the Jazz do. Anytime they see a guy that has some value around the league that they don't see as a foundational piece, they just move them. And they get more picks back and they get more young players back and they just keep trying to figure out what they can get. Lori Markinen with the Jazz is another great example of a guy that was a castaway in, in Cleveland or a guy that they didn't necessarily believe in, and suddenly he looks like one of the best young players in the league. Right, so if I was running the Nets, that's what I would do. I'd flip all those role players this year for young, fun players and picks, and I'd lean into being young and fun until I found the guy. Once I find the guy, that's when I look for the second guy. Once I find the second guy, that's when I look for the role players that complement those two guys. Next question. Hey, Jason, appreciate the content. Got a quick mailbag question here. Do you think the Warriors and Lakers should do a trade surrounding Rui, Gabe, and a first-round pick for Andrew Wiggins and a second-round pick? Feels like this might help the Warriors with size and ISO scoring bursts, whereas Wiggins is the perfect addition for the Lakers. So I actually heard uh, 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 from one of my friends who covers the league, I heard that uh, the Lakers, I guess, called Golden State at some point and offered uh, um, D'Angelo Russell for Andrew Wiggins, which would have been super hilarious because, like – the the first of all, D'Angelo Russell was with the Warriors, and the Warriors traded him and then slandered him on the way out the door. So that would have been funny. Uh, also, I think you could argue that uh, given their contracts, D'Angelo Russell might be a better asset right now, which is actually kind of crazy, uh, just because of how poorly Andrew Wiggins is playing. But here's the thing, uh, Andrew. If I could get Andrew Wiggins from 2022 on the Lakers, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But I just if if you really start to zoom out from the Andrew Wiggins thing, it's like. We viewed it as like, oh, he was here in Minnesota, and then, okay, he's with the Warriors, and he's going up, and, and then it like tanked. But if you zoom out, it's actually a lot of this in the one spot that's up high, meaning like it's actually more likely than not that Wiggins is who he is and that 2022 is an outlier. So um, it's an interesting trade idea. Uh, Rui Hachimura would help the Warriors a lot, so would Gabe. But I just think uh, Rui's a better player than Andrew Wiggins right now, and so I don't think that deal necessarily works. And um, unless Andrew Wiggins can get it together, I don't uh, in the next couple of weeks. I don't necessarily think he has a ton of trade value. Next question: Are there any rule changes you would implement in the NBA, and why? Just curious if you have any ideas. I thoroughly enjoy the show and appreciate your insight and takes on the game. So what I would do is I'd give the refs discretion to never call any sort of non-basketball play. 
There was a play at the end of the Denver Nuggets game that I'll give you guys as an example. Joel Embiid went up underneath the basket and clearly got fouled, I think by Aaron Gordon, if I remember correctly. And he's complaining to the refs. And it was a foul. It was, I 100% agree with Joel Embiid that it was a foul. Here's the thing. They didn't call it. And Embiid was underneath the rim and had an opportunity to power up and put the ball in the basket. And instead, he stuck his arms out and went like that to try to go up to the basket, and Aaron Gordon came across his arms, and they didn't give him the call. I would not give him the call either. Because there's no place in the world where you teach a basketball player to do that. It is not a basketball play to put the ball out and deliberately expose it to get knocked away. They do that because they get calls. It's a non-basketball play that grifters use to try to get to the line. And he's not the only one. I'm not targeting Embiid. I'm just using that as an example. I would give the ref's discretion any sort of non-basketball play that you see in any way, shape, or form, even if it's a blatant foul, just don't call it. Because that would be what's best for the league. And I, I thoroughly believe that the ref watched him do that in that moment and made that call. I think he looked at it and was like, oh, this is a nationally televised MVP showdown between Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic. It's a close game late. I'm not giving him that bullshit. Like that, That's what I think that was. And I think if the NBA did that, it would go a long way towards helping, um, helping the television product. All right, four more questions. Dream trade at the deadline for any team. Favorite show on YouTube. Keep going, man. Thanks again for the kind words. I'm going to go with that Warriors one for Dorian Finney-Smith and Mikhail Bridges. I just really want to see the Warriors have one last shot at things. And I think that would be the most fun trade that would kind of change the landscape of the league. Next question. It seems as if the standings are not as important as they used to be, and I just want to know why that is. It seems as if the young teams at the top and the veteran teams at the bottom, and the funny thing is that most NBA fans, including me, trust the lower-seeded team more than the higher-seeded teams now because of that. Do the veteran teams do this on purpose, or is it something else? Talked about this earlier in the show, but to make it simple, like I think these veteran teams are just trying to get through to April, and I think that they love playing basketball, but that the grind kind of gets to them more. And these younger teams, they love the, they're not sick of it yet. They're, they love the grind. They love being in the middle of January. Like, do you think the Jazz are bored right now? No, they're having a blast. And so, again, it's our job to just try to sort through all of that noise. Two more. Out of the Suns, Warriors, and Lakers, who are you more worried about? I'm more concerned with the Suns as a team they have. Uh, as the team they have is what they have, whereas the Lakers and the Warriors can make trades to be way better. I enjoy the show, and I just want your opinion. That's an interesting take as it pertains to the Suns not being able to make a trade. That said, the Suns have Devin Booker, Bradley Beal, and Kevin Durant. And they, I think they have the ability to play better than they have to this point in the season. I'm going to go with the Warriors there just because since they missed out on Siakam, I think their job at this trade deadline gets significantly more difficult. And I think the Lakers are just better than both teams as currently constructed. I'd pick them over, I'd pick the Lakers over the Suns or the Warriors in the series that started today. So I just think they're in a better position. Um, that's not to say that I think all three teams are going to make the playoffs. And I think the Warriors will find something to do. I just think that they have a little bit more of a long shot. So I have them third in that group right now. Last question. What do you think of the recent trend of NFL guys saying the world revolves around the U.S. and using American ratings to prove the NFL is lapping the NBA in popularity? As someone who's not American, it really bugs me because everyone outside the U.S. knows that the NBA is far and away the most popular American league in the world. So, uh, first of all, it's not necessarily a fair comparison just because the NBA is a global game in a way, in the, in a way that football is not. But I do agree with your premise. Like Every time NFL ratings get brought up next to the NBA, I'm just like, who cares? They're fundamentally different products. Like, yeah, 
every regular season game gets more views, a lot more views, but like the NBA is an inventory product. They have 82 regular season games. So even if they only get 2 million views per game on an ESPN game or whatever, like, or whatever it is that they get, like there's just, you know, the Lakers are on ESPN 35 times or whatever, 40 times in a season, right? So like, like again, they're just so fundamentally different as products. You know what I mean? And even above and beyond that, they're just irrelevant. Like the NBA is growing in popularity. So if the NFL is growing faster or is already bigger, who cares? They're over there. They're a different thing. The NBA is doing great. They have room for improvement, but the NBA is doing great. That doesn't, it's not like the, M, the NFL is like pushing the NBA down. That's not what's happening, right? Uh, it, it be, it's like politics, right? Like these cable news stations, they're going to crush everybody, especially this year with the, with the presidential election, right? Like who cares? Like they're a different thing. They're a completely different thing. They don't actually affect the health of the NBA at all. To me, the global potential of the NBA is what makes it so healthy. I think if we fast forward 50 years, you could probably have franchises in other countries. I think the league in general is just going to be incredibly healthy. I wouldn't even be surprised if we had NBA sponsored leagues around the world, kind of similar to NBA Africa. Like I, I think I think the NBA and basketball in general is just in a really good place. And I don't understand how the NFL applies to that at all whatsoever. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate you guys for supporting the show. I will be back on Wednesday when I get back from Denver. I appreciate you guys, and I'll see you then. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility.